Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Red Mage. My name is Joshua Ian, I'm your host, and The Red Mage. So, first off, I want to apologize for the very, very long hiatus I had in between episodes. You see, I was still a graduate student, and I was slammed in my last semester, um, and as a part of the inaugural cohort, there was a lot of, of trial and error in, in making changes to the schedule, and we were kind of the, the guinea pigs for that. The great thing is that not only did we get a lot of value out of that as students from our program, but as the inaugural cohorts that were the first to kind of lead the master's program, and we're, we're not the first by a chance, like we're, we're, our program is heavily inspired by the bachelor students that came before us, in which our professor, um, Heather Barker, did an amazing job in laying the foundation for this and giving us this opportunity. And if not for those undergraduates, our program wouldn't exist. But there was still a lot of kind of things that we contributed to kind of figuring out scheduling, um, workload, and so forth. And being hit with the coronavirus kind of slammed us in so many ways and brought up so many challenges that we undertook um, and that with the guidance of our really great mentors were able to overcome. But a lot of adjustments had to be made. So Part of that was being really, really slammed um, and needing to kind of juggle out all of these these projects, which, you know, it's it's it was painful in the moment. But looking back at it, it was a really kind of like enlightening experience. And for that, I'm really thankful. But given the the time and the resources that it it took to get through that final semester, there was something you had to give and it was a podcast. So for a short period of time, I was away, um, but now I am back to play catch up and sharing the progress of Corkspace, what happened um, in our presentation and what the overall results were. So before I formally start the episode, I also had to do a couple different projects. Um, one which was exploring the potential for MMOs uh, to act as a form of therapy. And it's a very kind of like first iterate, very low fidelity first iteration that you could actually download from my site, joshuaindesign.com, um, and, and test out. And it was kind of looking at immersive worlds in, th in, in VR um, or, in, yeah, in VR to kind of like, help you kind of meditate and break away and it was attached to an arduino that would kind of send you this message to breathe in and breathe out and you can check it out it's called alter you by just going to my site clicking on alter you and seeing the breakdown of the information uh that i that i did uh in making this project and again you can go ahead and download a free version of that um i provide both just the level design so you could explore the world and I also provide another package uh, for people that play with Arduino to go ahead and set up their Arduino, um, configure it, and upload the code uh, that will connect with the Unity interface. So in that, the reason I, I really kind of bring that up before just jumping into Quarkspace is because I've really, really loved exploring that in my project. And in using games as a critical technology and kind of breaking away from just a purely entertaining form or a form of entertainment, I should say, um, I wanted to see kind of ways that we could bring in these games to do social good, to, to use them as technologies that we utilize for, for, for better. And Ultra U was kind of like a foundation or just a beginning exploration of that. It's by no means a completely finished product. So you know, don't don't have like this this irrational expectation of it. But what it is, is is a start in a first iteration that I'm starting to get feedback on, to continue my exploration of that. And in exploring all this, I actually found a great group called Geek Therapeutics. So what Geek Therapeutics is is an organization that uses geekdom as a form of therapy and it's amazing so 
their mission is you looking at games, uh, pop culture as ways to kind of like help and and bring to the forefront mental health issues and help people kind of like find ways to cope with certain things using the th- the these these areas and things that they love. Um, it's fully su- supported by the APA um, and the approved continuing education provider NBCC, which gives some some pretty viable credit. So in checking this group out, they're led by, I believe, uh, Dr. Anthony Bean, PhD, and they have an entire team of accredited uh, scholars working on this. And one of the, the things that they provide is actually this really cool kind of like class pricing where one... You can kind of you you could sign up as a nine psychologist, get a certification in being able to promote and provide resources uh, to people that you care about, and kind of talking to them and trying to like help them kind of explore that potential. Then there is uh, the level above that where actual psychologists, professionals, therapists, counselors, social workers, and so forth can get some courses in. And learning how to use games as a and pop culture as mediums to address all of these very very like difficult challenges, and I I found out about them um, actually just through kind of like searching on Kindle for some for some books and trying to figure you know figure out where to go and start off, and I got um, both their books. Uh, my my favorite is. Final Fantasy Surpassing the Limit Break. And that book is super awesome. I love it. It's opened me up to looking at Final Fantasy critically. Uh, and a lot of the suspicions I had about Final Fantasy being like this kind of like a really good case study and where I use FF14 uh, for workspace and community engagement and involvement and um, community. This book really kind of looked at Final Fantasy as a series um, st- from one to fourteen, and looking at you know everything from the music, breaking down uh, Gasalt principles, looking at uh, my my favorite series part in the series is Final Fantasy Nine, and they talk about uh, this main character Vivi Orianer, and how the idea of d- life and death kind of play into this into his story and what it means. And the other the other chapter that I really love is on um, the music of Final Fantasy and through like pattern repetition and and all of these these great things. And I know I'm just kind of like spitballing here, but um, I don't actually have the, the book pulled up. It's on it's over on the on the other desk and I don't want to take the time to run over real quick and, and grab it. Um, and then the other book that I'm reading by uh, that was published by them is Integrating Geek Culture into Therapeutic Practice, The Clinician's Guide to Geek Therapy. And by no means am I a psychologist or, and I, and for the record, I don't have any background in this. My background is in fine art and human interaction design, um, where I'm using games and research to kind of promote ways to explore all of these, these large tangible problems that we have in society. Um, but part of being a researcher is looking at you know what's what's out there and exploring these concepts and these books and this organization provide a lot of really really great resources um so if you're you know thinking about geek psychology or if you're you're a psychologist uh student and you're looking at you're you've been curious about games as a form of therapy this is definitely a group they should check out they have an amazing framework uh they have streams they have some great books um, and they have some amazing classes. Um, I've been eyeing the heroic bundle for friends and family, um, just to kind of get my, my, my feet wet and start looking at all this. Um, but if I were, if I had a background in psychology and I was, you know, training to be an actual psychologist, I would, I would without hesitation move forward with either the legendary or mythic. You can check them out on their on their site and get more information at geektherapeutics.com. And with with my whole spiel said, um, I'm going to move back into Quarkspace.
So just as a refresher, in case either you skipped episodes because some of the, the original were kind of very structured and very rigid, and until episode six, where I kind of just found myself and decided to go, this is who I am and, and kind of move forward. Um, I'm, I'm just going to kind of give a, a breakdown. So during my graduate um, program at CSEOLB, I was looking into creating um, a game that would help cosplayers establish themselves as formal entrepreneurs. And it was using the world building methodology, which looks at something for cross cross reality experiences and deals with physical or uh, virtual space. And it provides a lot of like touch points in which to interact um, across like reality. Again, just an intangible or physical space. And the purpose of this was to create a minimal viable product that would explore the potential of this concept. So whether it fails or not wasn't really important. It's exploring the potential of it and getting a lot of useful information out of that. And having just finished this, I, one, believe I did establish a good framework. The first iteration needs a lot of work. There's a lot of things that need to change. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not married to the concept, but I got a lot of really great information out of it. I've, I've found a lot of really great resources um, to share with people. One of those is Hubs by Mozilla, which if you haven't checked out, it's 100% amazing. Um, it's great for kind of playing some, uh, some vir for setting up worlds for virtual D&D so that you can kind of move around, um, and which I did with Quarkspace uh, as the first iteration. Second, it's amazing for whole hosting meetings, for, for business, for events, and so forth. And I just said events, but if you were to hold like a concert, I know Altspace VR does this. I, I'm, I love Altspace VR. It's great. It's just at the time I was a Mac user and it's unavailable on Mac, which posed a lot of problems. Um, so now being a hybrid user, I jump on there too, but the nice thing about Hubs is that it's an alternative that if you're cross-platform or a Mac user, you can jump on, um, you could build your world, you could set up your events, uh, you could limit things with links, and it's a really great robust space that has both community support and a dedicated team. Um, so going back into, into Quarkspace, it's been released. Um, on my site, <laughs> there is a, a link to sign up uh, for a playtest. Although playtests will be closing pretty soon as we've I've, as I've held probably about 10 to 20 of them um, and gotten a lot of really great information. And the ultimate goal of that is now really kind of looking at everything that I've, I've, I've collected from user input, um, from focus groups, um, and looking at analogous models. But if there are parties that are interested in, in running like a, a test play of the original Quarkspace, um, I would be more than happy to do a, you know, host, host a, a short test play on run through. Um, and what's funny is that part of this, it's structured very much off uh, Dungeons and Dragons. And the reason I searched off Dungeons and Dragons was, one, I needed to shoot for a reasonable MVP in a in a reasonable amount of time with a limited amount of funding and resources. And I was looking really more to establish a framework that I could build off on. And when reading Shared Fantasy by Gary Allen uh, Fine, I was looking at like it, it was talking about the, this immersion in fantasy through role playing games, and having having been a recent player of DD and a dm i've i really loved the structure and you know the the tangibility of certain items like the books the figures painting and then really showing up and then during covid it's it's been you know i've been, I've been playing DD a couple times with some friends but it's been really difficult in transitioning that experience as an extroverted D&D player where I love kind of like getting into it and making eye contact and, and sometimes being the ham, <laughs> um, 
I found it a lot diff more different. I shouldn't say difficult. Um, during COVID, to really get engaged and immersed in that, because we've been using Roll Twenty, which is which is a really great platform. Um, I think there still is room for a lot of growth in there, um, but it's provided a space for D and D players to kind of be able to play virtually in this time of COVID, and I give it a lot of credit. It's an MVP in my in my eyes, um, or like a couple a couple iterations in, um, and it's continuing to grow. And I and I think that through providing through participation and through support and being critical but kind or constructive, I should say, of, of the platform, I think there's a lot of ways that this could actually improve and really overcome some of the challenges um, that. Um, one may face when first kind of like interacting with the with the platform and you know it's a great platform i think people should check it out uh it handles everything from your dice rolls to having a chat to allowing to share gifts um to voice integration and there's there it has a really solid framework that no one could deny but kind of going into that like i i miss being able to navigate through space i miss being able to kind of like physically see people and that that's kind of hard um to to overcome you know and what i what i did was in in going back to to what i said about uh gary allen uh fine and the book shared fantasy there's this this kind of like shared madness that we get into and we're, we're not crazy but we, we could distinguish that there's a difference between what we're that we're playing a game and that you know where where reality really is because we're, we're in that magic circle um, and for those that aren't familiar with the concept of the magic circle, this kind of goes to jo Johannes Hubzinga, uh, Roger Kalois, um, and, and other scholars who kind of like define games. And basically the magic circle is this kind of designated space for a period of time in which willing players come into and understand that this space functions with a different set of rules, uh, objectives, and uh, interactions. So an example is, like, let's say hopscotch. I think that's something that a lot of people would know. Or let's let's do jump rope. I think jump rope is a little bit more universal. Um, you basically get a rope. You say, in this space, we're going to be trying to jump over this rope. And willing participants will either have to start off uh, just jumping by themselves or to increase the challenges that we'll have two ropes, we'll spin them, and you have to jump in, we'll sing along to a song, or we'll kind of count the number that you do, and you have to beat that other per other player's number, um, you know, the number of times they jump. And that's happening with the space. The entire world hasn't changed. You just said that we're doing it here in this space, and we're gonna do it for like 30 minutes, either for the objective of exercise, or just to kind of have fun and, and try to beat our personal score. And then we're gonna go back out into the, into the real world and kind of just drone along. <laughs> um, but in that, D&D &D does a really good job of that. Like you come you come out from your world. Sorry, that was my phone. You come out from your world and enter in this, this, this fabled world that's designated through a map and you're kind of guided through this by this dungeon master who kind of relays the quests, the story, uh, the interactions, and you role play your character however you want to be, as tame or sometimes as perverse, given the, the parameters of the group and the rules of that group, um, you know, you, you go with it. So the other thing is that in the evolution of these role-playing games, you know, it started off where there was, it was like kind of like these chess games, uh, there was there was LARP um, and this um you know and then these like these fantasy games are coming up um inspired by these these war these war games and a little bit by larp too um and then that kind of leads into like the automation of certain things into these uh video games and so what i was hoping to do was establish this this foundation in a virtual space that played much like dnd that would have the potential to iterate forward into a full-on game. 
And the reason I was hesitant to just make a full-on game right off the back is because one, in presenting this, I would need to provide a vertical slice. Um, I would have to have full-on level designs, and it would it would be really difficult because I'm a bit of a perfectionist. And the other thing is that it would also be very biased by myself in thinking of how what people wanted instead of just asking them what they wanted. So the other thing that happened with with Porkspace is that through allowing this kind of D&D-esque area of just bare minimum, like very low poly like designs and very kind of like, you know, faint outlines. And it was just like this kind of like, you know, promotional adventure. Um, I was able to get a lot of input as to what people wanted and what people needed to have in that space. Um, and it was very much community driven. And one of the one of the funny things that I found is I, I really wanted to give out workspace for free. Um, and this is a really bad habit of designers that we're just like, you know, we made this. If you could get any value out of it, cool, it's free. Like we're helping out. And what players turned around to me and said is that, no, we want to at least donate to you. Or we'd be willing to pay this much. And this this is coming from people that are players that um, I built a repertoire with. Um and have provided honest input and it was it was really really spectacular to hear that the other thing is that um i wanted to see if like what is 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 this virtual world even relevant to you should this game be virtual or should it be a tangible game like a board game and through having kind of mimic this this very kind of like dnds style game in in webxr um webxr vr it well webxr <laughs> sorry um it's because i wanted i wanted to move it into 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 uh vr standalone but the accessibility of that was was would diminish a lot of target segments who don't have a, a vr headset so webxr was was a really great alternative to that um which is why I chose Mozilla Hubs. Um, but going back to, to the community input, like the community was was digging the fact that it's VR, that you could navigate through the space, but they also pointed out certain things that they, they craved. Um, they, they wanted some changes in the way that I would introduce uh, building a value proposition and teaching them about that. And what I thought was kind of like, I made the assumption that this was common knowledge and challenged it through the gameplay. And in focus groups, people were saying, it's like, well, we didn't really, you know, we were interested. What is, what is a value proposition? What is, you know, how do I build it? What are all the components? How would I make it for this? And, and this, in this first adventure, it was more to kind of like introduce you to the val to the concept and give a really kind of like low end or kind of very like quick example of how to like use one to set up kind of the context for the rest of the games and the rest of the adventures. Cause in like D and D when you're, when you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, you take on a adventure that's fitted suited for your level, which is like, if you're level one, you're not going to go kill a dragon. You'd get turned into toast, but as a level one adventurer, you can make some deliveries for people you can go, um, you know, gather information uh, still have an adventure and fight some some bad guys that are on your on your level like you kill some orcs some goblins um you know get used to your to your fundamentals and then ex and get introduced to the world and the rules and some of the gameplay um and elements and what's nice about this is that it's good for return players who make multiple classes because they could change the way that they do things but dnd is also based on a role it's based on chance with these uh with a series of dice rolls i wanted to take that element out and that was challenging because people were like okay well how do we do this then how do we how do we know that we navigated this and it was great feedback and another thing that people wanted was they wanted to um they really missed battles and they were telling me it's like okay well we really enjoy being able to kind of like 
role play and do a list and explore this world and it's really funny we love the humor of this game but we're missing the ability to fight something you know when when we're in here um you know we're, we're doing this this quiz and we're up against these opponents and it becomes just kind of a negotiation but we're not using chance and what would be really cool is that if we could fight some of these these bad guys that are trying to staunch us from um for moving forward to make some progress and i was like okay cool and i took a while to think about that um and i'll be getting back to that later but the other thing that they that they kind of got into and i was really surprised i was actually like you know i know that <laughs> sometimes there are the waifu elements in games um none of the characters were scantily clad but they were they were all these kind of like you had uh demon people you had uh what is it what you call it uh sea aquatic life you had a uh, ghost um inspectors and they were all kind of like in this anime form um and shout out to Shel shelby draws uh, on instagram for working with my madness and helping create these first uh iterations of the concept art you did an amazing job and people really loved the characters in fact, they loved them so much that getting back to my point, they wanted to date them. Um, and there was two instances, which, which was really funny. The first one was uh, Player X, um, because we were going to respect player anonymity. And they were saying, like, I didn't want to leave that space until I got um, this, this receptionist monster girl's number. Because I really loved her design, and I really loved the the fact that I could negotiate and you and use an aspect. And what's what's funny is that I ended up going to this um this conference called uh, Dreamline XR, and there was this fantastic panel, uh, and I believe the speaker was Cat. One of the speakers was Cat Young, um, and she was saying that when you're when you're building value propositions. For business it's a lot like dating and reflecting on that just this past week as i'm kind of building up the next iteration of Quarkspace, it's really funny because then that makes sense and now i'm wondering if i should expand that as to as a part of this so the other there is another user 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 y that during one of the feedback interviews uh this user was saying it would be really great to like date date this person and have like you know that's how you unlock a certain path or career path or set of like skills or something and a couple other players turned around and was like you want to date the the you know the tentacle monster and user y kind of was like well you know you could also befriend them that's another path but the idea of a dating sim kept coming up and where you would date these these um these beings and these characters and have a relationship with them. And some were even saying, just like, well, even if we just have a friendship. And it reminded me of Persona 5, where uh, you can date, um, you know, all of these, all of these characters and it, you know, you, you have your, your, your waifu harem or something. Um, the only downside to Persona 5 is that you couldn't, you couldn't have a that kind of relationship with your boy Ryuji. And I'm, I'm, I want to look at something a little bit more inclusive. So I do want to put in more male characters and non-binary characters. Um, but one of the things I'm trying to be wary of is respectfully portraying them in a, in a manner that puts them in a positive light. And so I've also collected some, some input on, from some people, uh, one who both have antagonized um, not, not the concept of, of non-binary, but the way that they have been portrayed. And others that are kind of pushing for, you know, more inclusion. And so what I what I discovered is that there's really this, this balance between having a character that is non-binary, uh, LGBTQ+, um, or BIPOC, but making it feel that what they're doing and their place in that world is just natural. And that would differentiate the, the them being so so inclusive that it from the perspective of someone that is hetero 
and male, um, that it almost becomes insulting. So one thing that I'm looking to do is kind of create like a, like an outline for a couple characters, uh, and then actually get the input from some um, non-binary or LGBTQ um, groups um, to see if these characters are correct in portrayal, what I could do to, to bolster that, and then really kind of normalizing them into the story. Instead of just overly highlighting that the fact that they're this, really give those characters some depth, some wonderful respect, and really highlight and humanize them. And I feel that sometimes that that does kind of get lost. Um, or that people rush to kind of jam pack in there, but then they're they're included, but then they're not given really the light and the focus that they need. And really kind of brought into is like this is just part of the norm that these are people too or these are the characters that reflect these kind of ventures and ideas as well and um you know i i'm want to be very cautious and just kind of jumping into that um but as a kind of a starter for that framework in corkspace sorry my phone keeps going off um as a starter in, in corkspace it is very much possible uh, to befriend or date um, same sex uh, regardless. Um, and these characters are kind of just more involved in the idea and concept of like, okay, well, we're cosplayers and we're trying to overcome these challenges. And, you know, they just, they happen to be either um, bi, poly or, or so forth. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm being slower in, in producing that, not because I'm against it, but because I want, again, like I want to make sure that everything that's being portrayed in here is accurate, um, inclusive, and is not in any way insulting. Um, the last thing I would ever want to do is just pump something out and then it be kind of a flop or be kind of miss, miss the critical point. And what's beautiful about being a human-centric designer and having the community be a part of this process is that they get to kind of help shape and, and provide input to see the way that they want they want this done and captured so that it's true to these, these very human um, relationships. Um, and, you know, Corkspace uses a lot of humor. It uses, and it's a style that I use to kind of like portray and kind of contextualize stuff. Think of fantasy meets Saturday Night Live in a sense, um, in which it's hyperbole that provides social commentary on, on all these things that are going on in the real world. And the thing that I'm focusing on, on here um, is that cosplayers have value. They they have value in the sense that one, they're they're these brand ambassadors for um you know, these, these gaming companies, uh, even for certain fashions lines, which are inspired by gaming companies that are producing um, lines of clothing that emulate or capture almost like casual cosplay to, to a certain point. Um, characters like Lightning from Final Fantasy Thirteen, um, Was it Sims backpacks uh, or backpacks and, and accessories inspired by the Sims? Um and the, the list kind of goes on. I don't have all my notes up in front of me, but it there is so much that is just out there that's coming out with all this. Like, um, and you know, these these content creators also or cosplayers also create content that's really valuable in promoting these these brands, these series, uh, in building online communities. And one thing that they do successfully is that they turn those online communities really into conversions for attending these conventions. And um, on San Diego, uh, I believe it's sandiego.com, one of the crazy reports I found in the regional impact is that it made like $149 billion over the course of four days with an attendance of like 135000 And it is just like, wow, that is a lot of money to make in four days. 
cosplayers have also kind of revitalized this this love of sewing and craft industry um they're they're developing things like like either purchasing or creating their own wigs uh i believe it was kinpatsu cosplay that i saw creating a jesse cosplay and then that was you know seeing her wig creation and like i wanted to cry because i was like man that's so much work and effort and it's so realistic and so accurate and at the same time you know these cosplayers uh for and i've learned this from ethnographic interviews are getting degrees in like mathematics or getting degrees in sociology they're getting degrees in like engineering and through looking at ways that we can build some kind of system in which they feel fulfilled in involving cosplay just through building a value proposition and being able to communicate the value that they're bringing it it i i believe that's a pretty big idea so let me give one example um there is a huge rise in esports as of late and let's say that for example uh, i believe riot and blizzard have been using cosplayers you know they they paid uh some some famous cosplayers like nigiri and a couple others to come in and and highlight um you know like the release of the, the war of the warcraft movie um which i have my own opinions on but you know it's different from world of warcraft the video game which is in my opinion very phenomenal um by providing quality of life to, to players um and I've I've come in for for Battle of Azeroth, which I heard is is the worst, um, but I'm just waiting to to land some full time work to to get into and conduct more virtual etnography into Shadow um, Shadowlands, um, which I've been talking to to play a couple players um, and getting their input, and it it seems like a phenomenal extension. Um, most of most of my virtual ethnography was in Final Fantasy fourteen, but getting back to the point is that let's say that there's a small indie company that is coming up and they're they're hosting this event and where they're they're showcasing a, you know a new game and they're trying to get users to come in and purchase a subscription one of the hardest things to do when creating something new is to get users to trust your system and if cosplayers were involved they could make some kind of like marketing um um, what is it system or strategy and distribution plan that would involve cosplayers in a multi multi tax system where they could have them on a Twitch stream, you know, cosplaying and, and showing, you know, doing like an open box, a gameplay, and then have a live event, hopefully when Corona's over, but this would probably be a virtual event now in VR or WebXR, something very like interactive and inclusive. Um they could have, you know, virtual cosplay, you know, like done in these space, in these uh, VR, WebXR spaces. And then they could start kind of like building up these events that get the community involved and really start bringing in that community. Because one of the one of the biggest things I've seen is that a community is is necessary to to any any business. And it's really kind of taking your user segments and breaking down where each segment falls in, in terms of this community. Are they saying, well, that's just kind of going to like watch and, and just, you know, share that to someone that might be interested? Are they going to be, um, you know, people that are early adopters and just jumping straight in? Or are they going to be someone that's kind of a little bit more cautious and is like more like, I'm interested in this, but I want to know more about this. And I want to know more about the system. I want to share what you're, what you're making and kind of like compare it to other things. And then after you have a large enough build, they'll jump right into you know, and we, we've seen that. And a couple of the challenges that, that come up for, for all these, these, these places are, you know, what, how can we use this? How can we, we implement or elevate cosplayers? And then cosplayers, how do we make a value proposition? How do we communicate what we, what we want to do? How do we communicate our skills? And so a lot of the user feedback really addressed that. Um, you know, one of these things was that I got from an ethnographic interview was that someone was has been trying to make an entire, um, what you call it, business off of their cosplay by attending conventions and going to all these events and building a community. But one of the struggles they had is 
that they they that resonated with almost every cosplayer interviewed was how do you convince people that run these conventions that you're performing at a quality and that you're important enough to be invited as a guest cosplayer and then how do you communicate that value to someone that has an option of just going up to someone that's like new into the cosplay world and how why would they pick you over that person you know these, these are really hard things to hear you know and, it, and it's difficult like even in, in job applications when you're when you're out there and you say i'm the i'm the optimal candidate i've done this 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 and this and then you have someone else that comes in and it's like well i'm new to all this uh and you could pay me a lot less you know how do you how do you come how do you go around that well you have to change your value proposition you have to have you know a pitch how do you how do you brand yourself how do you brand your services and these are all things that were kind of coming out of this research and and user feedback um a couple of things that i that i noted was that this this field of cosplay is becoming inundated with cosplayers and when I say that, like everyone, they're, they're, I put a little stress on that. And some people are probably going to be like, <gasps> what does he mean? Is that bad? And yes and no. In the sense that early adopters like Yaya Han, Jessica Nagiri, um, you know, and others that are had made like six figures were the ones that were kind of like jumping into this field first. And now it's become so difficult because there's so many people cosplaying and so many people wanting to kind of transition into cosplay as a full-time career that what does that mean? And uh, I actually got Yaya Han's book, Yaya Han's Planet Cosplay, and she, she talks about running a cosplay empire. And at first I thought like, you know, there's this part of me where it's like a cosplay empire, that sounds so cheesy. But the more I kind of like sat on it while I was waiting for it to come in from Amazon, uh, the more I, I was like, you know what? Yeah. Like, you know, when we talk about empires, like that has a, like a, like a weight to it. And um, Yaya did a really great job in breaking down, you know, the different kinds of, of work in the cosplay field. You know, you can be uh, a tutor. You can be someone that goes, attends conventions. You can be, um, you know, someone that sells stuff, you could be a streamer. Um, and then there's what I noticed about Yaya is that she has this entire kind of system where she incorporates aspects of all of that. And, you know, the, the book in itself, like listening to her, her story, having come out of, you know, this, this area of very awkward youth and taking a huge, like in a huge fucking risk and just saying F it coming to the States and really trying to pursue this dream is really awe-inspiring. And, you know, what, whatever the controversy or whatever opinions people have about Yahya Han, you know, I that's irrelevant to bringing up the fact that as, as a case study, not only has she overcome a series of difficulties and events, but she's also, she has established what she calls a cosplay empire. And on multiple fronts, she has broken down not only her branding, her message, her her clients, um, her teammates, and you know what's important about cosplay, what cosplay is, and that that fantasy that she has a very strong value proposition in being able to pitch, and she has a brand and and work that back all that up. So in that, you know, nowadays, like. There, there's so many people that are very talented at cosplay, very talented at special effects, makeup, you know, Arduino and 3D printing, um, sewing and, and, and high couture. Um, and then when they mix that in with whatever degrees they've gotten out of formal education or certificates, um, you know, they're like, they're a powerhouse. But then where do you go to kind of sell that service? And so Quarkspace is really kind of looking at, at, at that um, and trying to help them identify that through the form of a game. And through play, you kind of scaffold 
these these levels of what a value of exposure to a value proposition who is the audience what do you enjoy making like are you a streamer or are you more someone that is you know like a business person and you know the business of cosplay and that would be your your forte and then you know it'd be about managing cosplayers and booking them for cons or would you be you know that that cost that cosplayer that really does something that's like out there and in talking to one of my mentors about this you know i i struggled with this um early on because i was like damn there's so much and i'm and, you know and i was going over some of the stuff with him and we both agreed that cosplay was inundated where there was just hundreds of thousands of cosplayers and from his professional experience he said you know, it's really hard for businesses to be like, okay, well, this is the cosplayer we need because there's so many and, it's, and there's like so much. What are they doing that is unique and different with their cosplay that really transitions them from that? You know, because, and it was it was hard hearing this and I wanted to defend cosplayers 100%, but in welcoming this, this comment, He's saying he's like, well, you know, these businesses own all of the of the copyright to these characters and people are paying homage to them. Yes, you know, they're they're giving attention and they're acting as brand ambassadors, but you know, they're they're also providing entertainment and a service and a story and a narrative and all of this, you know, value to the person that builds a connection with that character. So in what sense are cosplayers able to contribute back value in some way? And I was like, I wanted to fight it a little bit at first because, you know, have, having seen the amazing things that cosplayers do, the accuracy into which they, they are basically the quality of stuff that you would see in Hollywood uh, is, you know, like, it, it moved me and having done field activities with them, having gone to conventions, but then taking a step back and just being like, okay, well, what is he trying to say? What is the, what is the message? And it really come down to like, there's an inundation in this field that it's hard to kind of like determine what's, what's being presented as true value, what, where, or who is bringing a lot of value to that company. What are their services that they're providing how are they different from all other competitors and you know what is their brand what's their system how do you engage with them what are the touch points what are the areas in which that they're they're creating what are the business prospects what's the the monetary value that they're going to bring in what are they doing differently um you know and from this i never thought i'd i'd, I'd say this but i actually got into cosplay myself um I'm a huge fan of Final Fantasy XIV, well, the entire Final Fantasy series. XIV, I was I was big on for the longest time. It was it allowed me to be a warrior light. It let me jump into that shared you know madness. And there was always hesitation because I was like, ah, you know, I don't I don't look like those cosplayers. I don't you know I'm not not there. It's not something I'd want to do. And then in my my thesis show. I wanted to do something different. I wanted to go out a little bit. And, you know, it's it's hard when you're you're tied for time and you're on two hours of sleep. And I was running on 20 shots of espresso for the last for the last day. And I was had probably an hour and a half of sleep before my show. And I had just gotten the cosplay in the day before I was like freaking out. And I was talking to um, uh, a cosplayer named Azayaka Cosplay who has been such a great help in this journey and encouraged me to just take that jump. And I really enjoyed it. And in, in taking that leap and in, in presenting to this, I'm, I can't, I don't call myself a cosplayer because I don't, I don't think that I, you know, one, I'm not crafting my own stuff and I'm, I probably be more of a casual cosplayer in the sense that not like casual cosplay as in, getting certain articles of clothing that would resemble a character, um, but more in, this, in the context of I would cosplay when I have a group of friends that we would be able to go to a con or like do like some kind of event together or just have like a, like a, like a small kind of like, you know, D and D party or something. 
Um, but I, I learned, you know, the cost. I learned all that, and it was just like, it's insane. And the quality of the costume was really good. I got a lot of compliments. Um, I got my costume from Etsy, um, and I can't remember the name of the store right now, but it, um, they were they were really great. Uh, I will make sure in the future to one grab their information so that you can you can contact them and check out their their merchandise. Um, but in that, in an, in being a in participating in cosplay for that day, I realized that you know if I were to be doing this in in the community, a person could label me as a cosplayer. A business could label me as a cosplayer. So how would I stand out? And Corkspace really kind of brought out a couple of those questions, like, you know, uh, and one of the missions, like, how how do you negotiate to get a higher pay? How do you communicate what you're doing has value? And the reason I'm not just giving like an umbrella answer for that is because cosplay really kind of breaks down into a series of different ways that you could conduct business. Um, sorry, I stepped aside real quick to go grab Yaya Han's book. Um, and as I'm looking here, a couple of things that in in the cosplay empire is really about like you know working for a cosplay company. Um, was it building an online store, uh, getting a sponsorship? Selling templates, patterns, and kits, prop costume commissions, uh, educational tutorial concepts, Patreon, fan clubs, you know, but those are some of the more conventional ways. In my in my research, I also found opportunities where, where teachers were cosplaying, um, and it got young kids really, like, engaged in wanting to come to school because they loved seeing their, their teacher represent or cosplay some of the characters from animes that they loved, you know, and it was like, wow, this this small thing made education an immersive experience. But then, you know, if we if we simply and Yaya is doing a great job in her book in saying that, you know, these are the the interesting things that have been kind of working so far, and this is what the cosplay system has worked um, for a lot of people. I've also gotten feedback on that where I was like, okay, what, well, what about sponsorships? And in, in, in some of the, the, the user interviews, there was like, well, I don't want to be a sponsor because then I want to make my own stuff. And then I would have to represent that brand. I would have to kind of stay stuck to that. And, you know, it's, it's a struggle between how do you get money for this? And then how do you make the time and effort and get the resources to do the stuff that you want? And other people were like, well, you know, I don't see cosplay as like the end game. I see it as, as a vehicle to get to where I want. Um, I want to say it was, this is, it was a Gigi Lindsay, um, or there was a good article on, you know, the six girls who made their, who make a living off cosplay. These girls make a living off cosplay. And I think it was on medium or uh, vice. Uh, dot com and one of them said that you know well cosplay is more of a vehicle because i enjoy cosplay but i want to kind of be a professional model and cosplay was that vehicle to help me get there for others um i interviewed a couple of other cosplayers and one of them was saying it's like well cosplay for me is just a form of retreat and i enjoy it but my long-term goal is to be a video editor and you know, I was like, wow, you know, you're in LA, you have this, this very large following. And they were just like, yeah, but this is my passion. And what if there's potential there to really kind of use cosplay as a vehicle to kind of like make, make a, a pitch for yourself, you know, and these, yes, some of these things may be speculation, but it's through looking outside the box and looking at the way that cosplay has this, this form of interaction, form of inclusivity, um, and it engages in this magic circle, usually at conventions or designated gathering spaces. But, you know, if we if we just say that's all it is, we're cutting off all these possibilities of what it can be. And when we're looking at, at things that are unconventional, it's like, well, we never really thought we could fly 
And then we had the Wright brothers make a play, and these guys weren't engineers. Like, they were just, like, some run-of-the-mill guys that were just like, hey, let's do this. You know, and they were going up against, like, huge, you know, people that had, like, you know, a lot of money to, to drop down on whatever. Um, and we fly. That concept of, of humans being able to fly would have been freaking ridiculous, you know, like, to, like years before that. It would have been thought of impossibility. You know, and that's just like one example. And in like esports, everyone was would is saying that, you know, like esports would never take off. It was just like a Twitch thing. It was just a fad. And yet here we are where like esports is um is like basically another like competitive sport. Um and I want to give a shout out to Esposure. Um and I believe you could check them out at esposure.gg where they kind of make this entire like system that helps kind of educate and prepare people for a career in esports and it's it's amazing what they do. Um and at the same time like there's this there's this uh I believe it's called Notch as mentioned in Jay McGonagall's book uh, Reality is Broken where people are kind of like you know there's this like love of being able to be this kind of like backseat driver and giving advice and like watching and participating with someone while you're not the actual one playing and you know even just using that like as a as a method to kind of come in there have been businesses i believe one is in i want to say san diego or irvine um it's and i remember because it's close to one of the uh the wonder cons where it's a bar that you could just kind of come in and hang out and watch esports and you know grab some drinks and some food and like chill like a sports bar but for esports and that's already like you know kind of transitioned everything and here in um los angeles um what do you call it we have guild house or uh guild tavern i did we did check on that guild house Yeah, it's called uh, Guildhall. Sorry, my bad. Um, and it's, <laughs> I forgot the name, and it's funny because I frequent there so much in Burbank um, pre-corona, but after everything shut down, it's been such a long time, and like I've been wanting to go back, and it, and it hurts. But Guildhall is another one of those like geeky places where you can get these um, game-inspired drinks. You can watch esports you could come in you could play tabletop games and it's a really really comprehensive fun and immersive experience that has shifted out of just like this old kind of sports bar and it has integrated games and esports more into our everyday lives and it's you know and esports is also becoming a phenomenon like they've also partnered with uh i believe cloud nine is partnering with puma to release a line of clothing and I, I've been eyeing a couple of shirts, you know, and I'm not the, the biggest um, fan of League of Legends. I play casually, but it's something that has kind of put it out there. And what I'm getting at is that with cosplay, you know, cosplay was originally seen as something that was kind of like it was very niche um, cosplay as a separate segment of like costuming or um, kind of like dress up or anything. The earliest documented um, form of cosplay was in was it nineteen oh eight when someone did uh, Gygax from a from a from a from a comic strip, and then they got arrested by a police, uh, which which is just like you know because they were they were seen as like a threat or a menace, and it's just like you know cosplay has gone through that stigma for so long, and it's been weird, it's been nerded out, and I remember watching uh, some show about people's like worst habits or like disintegrating habits. And there was this girl that wanted to dress in Lolita and she, her parents were telling her to go find a job and she applied at a mechanic store for a receptionist. And the guy was just like, yeah, no, he's like, her dress is just not appropriate. But then when we, when we think about it now, like we have so many like street clothing is, is popular. Um, you know, we, we have, some forms of casual cosplay in the sense that, you know, you're, you're mimic, you're taking casual wear to make a, a theme that emulates a character that is socially acceptable. Um, 
cosplay has become a worldwide phenomenon. You know, we have famous cosplayers. Uh, people are enjoying dressing up for like large events like San Diego Comic Con and so forth. And it's just become so much a part of our culture now that we celebrate it. And to to say that this is the only conventional way that we can do something really is like it just sounds limiting and finding ways that cosplayers can build their own value propositions that suit their needs and their wants and their personal objectives really is the directive and objective of Quarkspace and through its Quarkspace has succeeded in doing that in this first iteration by really kind of allowing people to share what they want and what they need in in this gamified or this game-based learning platform um, that allows them to kind of shape something that would benefit them and identifying how to establish a business, identify key target audiences, build their value proposition, and know how to kind of brand and market themselves. So, I mean, what if we, we had cosplay like like educators who would cosplay and do anime renditions of, you know, Battle of the Bold or something, where it was like Kurosaki Ichigo representing, uh, you know, one side and then like Aizen representing the other. Kids would, I, I think kids would fucking love that. Or what if we had, you know, something like um, a book signing event and then you could get like a discount if you came cosplayed as some of the characters. Why not? Why not? I mean, Miku Miku has already helped sell Toyota Corollas. You know, we we've seen cosplayers help sell like merchandise for these gaming for these for these games. Why can't we apply that to other places? And what cosplayers, if any, would be interested in that? I can't say for certain. All I can say is that there are a lot of ingenious people who are cosplayers and have built professional skills through cosplay that have the potential to really kind of help lead that. And so with that in mind, um, I've, I've sorted through all the feedback. And in the next episode... Um, we're going to really kind of go through um, the major findings from the gameplay. We're going to go over the failure successes, and we're going to talk about the next iteration of where Quarkspace is going to go. But this kind of blurb has been kind of like a, a series to kind of catch up and kind of like talk about like everything and kind of reestablish uh, the podcast and kind of know that I'm still alive. I'm still doing this and uh, we're going to be moving forward. And I want to wrap up this season one for Quark Space because there's so many interesting ideas out there and I'm going to continue to work on Quark Space. I'm going to continue to iterate it forward. But Quark Space is a long-term project um, that I need to build a team up for, that I need to have um, you know, the time to, to build this out. And as a sneak peek of episode eight, it's going to be going into Unity, but more in that episode. Um, but going back to this, like I'm, I'm looking. I want to continue to explore um, the possibility of games as critical technologies for inclusion, for social justice, for dealing with very large problems. I want to address this. In this past week, we have seen some crazy shit. And excuse me for using this this language. But it is inexcusable to see people try to run into the Capitol and take people prisoner. And if this is an indicator that we need to make changes in our society for the better, that are more inclusive, that are good, that there needs to be changes in education and that there needs to be a lot of changes structurally that address very large problems such as systematic racism, and systemic that is you know just can't go ignored anymore and these have been testaments to that and me as a game designer i'm i'm not interested in making 
you know, League of Legends. I'm not interested in making uh, an entertaining RPG. I'm into looking at games as critical technologies and helping people. Like Quarkspace helps uh, cosplayers as micro-entrepreneurs. And next iterations might open up to more different kinds of entrepreneurs and creative fields. But I want to look at games and, and w the potential that they have for helping with, you know, like mental health, um, getting a lot of younger voters to come out and vote. And when I say games, I'm not just saying video games, but I'm talking about like everything from board games and all these various taxon taxonomies of games um, to really inspire people. And I want to do so in an inclusive and engaging and accessible manner. So as I conclude here for episode seven, I want to say thank you guys so much for tuning in. Uh, and thank you for, for listening in even after this large hiatus. Um, I'm going to try to release these episodes back to back, but until next time, keep it cool, keep playing, stay nerdy. This is the Red Mage. I'm out.